The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. So uh, this second session is the contemporary uh, relevance of um, biblical law. And uh, the significance of, of this, I think, was in some respects brought out by Luke's question uh, yesterday during the Q&A period when he uh, insightfully asked, what's the point? Is there any actual hope? You know, you go through a, a week like this and you sort of day after day hearing about abortion and euthanasia and judicial pluralism and, uh, you know, you start to get depressed. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it's important, though, that you first diagnose. If you go to the doctor, the expectation is that you're not just going to be given written a prescription. The doctor is first going to diagnose the problem. Otherwise, any attempt at a cure is uh, random. So the first, first of all, the doctor usually asks you a series of questions and then maybe prod you a little bit. Uh, in various places till you say ow and then uh, diagnose the situation and, and prescribe the cure. Well, <clears throat> on a week like this, it's important that we understand what the issues are, what the problems are first, so that then we can speak about what we're supposed to be putting in its place. And it's certainly true you can't uh, fight something with nothing. And one of the challenges for the Christian church today is we've had, we have had a lot of social commentators diagnosing the problem, but how are we supposed to respond? What, what do you put in its place? And, the, and uh, the Christian answer to that, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the law of God, which is God's kingdom charter. Uh, the word of God is the charter that God gives to us for application to every aspect of life as the way we uh, fight. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, we're fighting against spiritual forces ultimately, and the weapons we fight with aren't carnal. We don't just engage in the battle the way the world does. We've got actually power uh, that has divine power to demolish strongholds, and those strongholds are the arguments, the false knowledge that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So we have supernatural aid uh, in the process. So there is, we have a gospel of hope. It's not one of despair, it's not one of defeat, it's one of hope in which we can look to the future with a sense of purpose, with a sense of expectation of God's work in history, and with an expectation that his word never returns to him void. It always accomplishes what he sends it out to do. So all that's ever needed in history is a faithful Christian people. And when there is a faithful Christian people, a godly people who are applying God's word, Transformation is the inevitable result. I want to start by reading just a few verses from Psalm 119, and then I'm going to go to Numbers 27. David, uh, the psalmist, writes in Psalm 119, beginning at verse 17, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. For I am a stranger in the earth. That's how David felt as a carrier of God's covenant. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. This is good advice for a lawyer. Your testimonies are also my delight. I strongly encourage you to acquaint yourself with Psalm 119 as a source of meditation and encouragement in your vocations and professions. Now, the first thing I want to say about uh, the relevance of biblical law has to do with history, continuity, and continuity. Numbers chapter 27, uh, I'm going to read verse 1 through 11. And it's got some uh, difficult names in, so you'll bear with me. Like uh, many legal documents, it could appear at first boring to read, but it is significant. The law, the, then the daughters of 
Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machiah, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near, and these are the names of his daughters, Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, Terzah. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar, the priest, and before the leaders of all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, and here we have the legal problem, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he has no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers. And you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his, his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his own family, and he shall possess it, and it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. The 19th century jurist, Sir Frederick Pollock, said of that passage, Numbers 27, 1-11, that it was the earliest recorded case which is still of authority. That's about 4,000, 4,500 years later. The first recorded case, which is still of authority, inheritance law. In the 9th century AD, King Alfred the Great begins codified English law with the Ten Commandments. In AD 1540, Henry VIII established seven cities of refuge based on the biblical model of Numbers 27. The uh, Puritan settlers of New England self-consciously planned their uh, commonwealth after the pattern of biblical law. If you uh, look up the order of the General Court of Massachusetts from 1636 and the general laws of the Plymouth Colony of 1658, you see there almost verbatim biblical law transferred straight into the law of the uh, settlers in the colonial America. English canon law was so substantially drawn from biblical law that in regard to the regulations of uh, English inheritance law, it was Pollock who referred to Numbers 27 and said, this is still of authority today. When the uh, civil government of Israel was established, God actually addressed the 70 elders of the people. He pours out his spirit upon them and actually the first, if you uh, look closely at the text, you see that effectively the first Pentecost, the first pouring out of the Spirit of God corporately on a people was during the ordination of the civil authorities in Numbers chapter 11 verses 16 through 17. So you have a corporate pouring out of the Spirit upon civil authority in the Old Testament. And then you have later the anointing of Saul. When the, uh, in Israel a second form of civil government is established in Israel, you have essentially a, a, a commonwealth or a republic becoming a monarchy in 1 Samuel 10, verses 1 through 7. You, you have a coronation in which the Spirit of the Lord anoints the new king. So you have the Spirit of God being poured out and recognizing, if you will, human government, human authority under God. And you may say, well, that's ancient history. While the early church continued these coronation rites with bishops and leaders, and the form of the rite comes right down to us in the oath taken by our head of state in 
England and Canada. Queen Elizabeth II, the head of state of Great Britain and Canada. And this is what uh, uh, was stated during the coronation ceremony. This was part of the oath required of Queen Elizabeth II. She's asked, and I quote, Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the United Kingdom, the Protestant, in the United Kingdom, the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? After this oath, the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland brought to the Queen the Bible. You can actually watch this, the the coronation ceremony, it was filmed. And you can get the full text. Saying, this is what she's asked, Our gracious Queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule of the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book. The most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. So whether you like the Queen and the fact that the Queen is still technically the head of state here. And however much of the faith underlying the oath may have been missing in some of the people who were part of that ceremony. Although I think the Queen herself took it very seriously. We have right there embedded in the very... Uh, essence of uh, the English Commonwealth, British North America Act, uh, the uh, Queen as the head of state, a spiritual coronation that was patterned directly after the coronation in Israel. After the anointing, which actually cites in the coronation the anointing of Solomon, it's there, the Archbishop of York presented the Queen with the sword of state, during which she is charged to wield the sword of justice in God's authority by stopping the growth of iniquity, protecting the church, defending orphans and widows, restoring, punishing and reforming where required in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you like it so far? When the orb with the cross is then given to Queen Elizabeth II, the Archbishop declares, and I quote, Receive this orb set under the cross and remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ our Redeemer. Now that, is the, that was the formal coronation ceremony of our head of state. That's what she swore to. The whole service bears testament to the coronation service in Israel... And what it was saying, what is it declaring? It's declaring that, at least in our history, and I'm talking now about history, continuity and relevance, that in our history, the civil order was seen as being under God, accountable to God, and as being an order established by God's own decrees. That that's the source of authority, it's the source of sovereignty, and that the crown itself is under God and under his law. In the United States, for example, the incoming president, if you're Republican, the incoming president of the United States takes an oath on the Bible. That still happens. But it didn't used to be a closed Bible. Did it, Jeffrey? The presidential oath of office used to be taken on an open Bible, and it was open to Deuteronomy 28, 27 and 28 which invokes God's blessings and cursings on a nation for obedience or disobedience to God's law. Do you think God's forgotten? Do you think God's forgotten what was promised by our head of state at the uh, coronation? Do you think God forgets? Just Just because for people who are watching it may now be a dead ceremony, just religiosity... Do you think that you can swear on God's word, on God's name? Don't, you, don't witnesses still come into the court and place their hand on the Bible? Sometimes. Do, sometimes? sometimes? They can affirm or they can swear. Okay. So they can affirm, do they affirm on the Bible or not? Both. They can just affirm, say, I will. When did that change? Five years ago. Okay. So one way or another they affirm or people still swear on scripture. 
I don't know what the situation is in England now, uh, whether, whether in the Crown Courts. I think still swearing on the Bible is important. In fact, in the US, if you could not swear on God's word, you weren't allowed to, be a, you weren't allowed to give testimony in the court. Because you were considered an atheist and your word couldn't be trusted. Interesting, isn't it? The oath of office of the president then was taken on an open Bible to the law of God to invoke God's blessing and cursing. God hasn't forgotten. All this reveals that biblical law, in our history at least, has had a continuous history as an object of relevance and study that makes it unique amongst ancient legal systems and giving it, according to Jonathan Burnside, the British specialist in biblical law, a claim to historical influence unmatched by any other legal system of antiquity. The relevance, uh, although you can trace our tradition right back through to um, uh, King Solomon, uh, back, back through English history, back through Alfred the Great, all the way back to Moses... The point uh, in recognising the continuity of biblical law is to say that it still has something to say to us today. Jonathan Burnside, professor of the School of Law, University of Bristol, he's a reader there in biblical law, has talked about in his uh, very significant study, God, Justice and Society, not only how biblical law has shaped the Western world, but how it actually remains relevant to solving the legal dilemmas that we face today. In fact, he actually claims, he says that the biblical law, he says, will continue to be a source of inspiration and debate when modern legal empires have been long forgotten. And this is what he says. Listen closely. I haven't got this on PowerPoint. I don't have PowerPoints for you. I'm sorry about that. But this is uh, what he says. And I do recommend that you buy Jonathan Burnside's book, God, Justice and Society, and read it. This is what he notes. Biblical law continues to exert a hold over popular culture at a basic level, including the structure of the working week, the idea of a day of rest, the constraints placed upon political authority, the use of everyday language such as references to a scapegoat, the idea of mercy, employee rights, and the special significance historically attached to marriage and the monogamous family unit. The word covenant, which is prominent in biblical law, used to be the standard word for a contract in English law and is still used in the law of property today. Biblical law is also remarkable for its revolutionary breadth and depth of vision. It has the imaginative power to disturb the world. A great deal of modern law is an indirect engagement with biblical law. So he says, for example, the abolition of the English laws of blasphemy in 2008. But often it is so implicit that we are not aware of it. We have taken our understanding of biblical law for granted for so long that it has become unfamiliar. This is the imminence of biblical law. It is part of our culture, but it is alien. Biblical law does not function in relation to English law or US law as an external or parallel body of law, like Islamic religious law or Sharia. This is because unlike Sharia law... Biblical law is nascent in the history of English law and so continues to be an influence on many citizens. It is simply unrealistic to suggest that we live in a wholly secular legal system, nor have politicians been successful in finding a dominant alternative discourse to the ethical language of the Bible. So even where the engagement with biblical law we might say is negative in the sense that it's just abolishing biblical laws, the point that he's making is that we are continuously engaging with biblical law whether we realise it or not. Abolition of uh, Sabbath laws, abolition of blasphemy laws, abolition of sodomy laws, abolition of divorce laws. This whole legal revolution that we've been in the midst of has been an engagement with biblical law. So the alien yet imminent character of biblical law uh, is relevant right there in the legal profession. Now it's also relevant to the church. Most of you go to church. I hope all of you go to church if you're here. When was the last time you heard a sermon on one of the laws of Leviticus or even a sermon on the commandments? 
You see, if you actually look at the contemporary church situation and you compare it to even 50 years ago or 100 years ago, the law of God has been pushed to the periphery. And this is at the heart of the problem because we want, the, we want our culture in the world to recognize biblical ethics in some way or another, but the church doesn't even recognize biblical ethics. The church doesn't consider biblical law. It used to be the case, especially before the Second World War, that in the weekly liturgies of most Protestant churches, the law was recited. In fact, especially those of you who are legal students, I wonder actually how many of you could actually recite the Ten Commandments for me in the right order. I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to embarrass anyone. But how many of you would actually be able to tell me, what, the, even in abbreviated form, the Ten Commandments in order? Most Christians can't do it. Because they're not catechized. We don't recite the law in the liturgies of the church anymore. And no longer do we display the Ten Commandments in our churches. We used to. They always used to be on display. Now we don't want them to be seen on any public buildings or outside anywhere in, in a public space because it might offend somebody. So this has happened in the church first, and then it happens in the world. The commandments in a prominent position in our lives used to be the thing that kept biblical law relevant to the social order. It was at the forefront of people's minds in a God-fearing society. This is implicit in the idea of law, because law is a form of command whose validity is derived from the social reality, at least in people's lives, chiefly the fact of sovereign power and the fact of habitual obedience on the part of most citizens. That's what gives law its sense of social power. There's habitual obedience to it. There's constant awareness of it and of its source. So law, fundamentally, is a value processing system that is bound up with the character and goals of a society. Law is a value processing system that is bound up with the character and goals of a society. Our laws tell us something about the goal of our social order. Now, if the divine goals for the world given to us in Scripture remain true, and I'm pretty sure that God hasn't changed, he hasn't changed his mind about his goal for history, that God's purposes in history haven't changed, if those goals are still the kingdom of God, remember we said yesterday, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Has he changed, has he, has he, has he given you any further revelation about how we're supposed to pray? Has, has he changed his mind about us praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I'm pretty sure the way Jesus taught us to pray is still the way we are to pray. So if the goals are still the kingdom of God expounded in scripture, then the Bible as a whole gives us God's value processing system based on his sovereignty, and we're called to obedience to it if we're going to experience human flourishing. And that's why, Luke, we have to press ahead with boldness and hope and confidence in these things, because God has his kingdom purpose in mind, and law plays a critical role in that. How else might we, might we describe then? So that's the history, continuity, and present relevance of these things. How might we characterize uh, biblical law? Has this just gone off? Is this recording me, or is that recording me? All right, see, I don't need this anyway, do I? I've got a big mouth. I'll just take that off and change the battery later. Okay. Biblical law, it, it presents itself to us as a journey into wisdom. As a journey into wisdom. Now, it's certainly true that perhaps some of you, and especially our own culture, do find it difficult in our time to believe that we are obligated to some kind of obedience to ancient law. It isn't easy for us to accept that because we, are, we have been so indoctrinated with humanism that we get this notion, we're obsessed with the notion in our time, that what is new is better. What is latest is to be most valued. That we're smarter, we're more developed, we're more, we've progressed, we've advanced. This is the evolutionary idea that um, we're simply more sophisticated and uh, better informed than all of our forebears. And that what's true, what was true for them isn't necessarily true with respect to us. So law is treated like cars. 
you know, what's latest and most sophisticated is going to be most useful and better, although I expect some of you classic car enthusiasts might take issue with that, as I do with my 91 Firebird. <laughs> but in terms of morality, in terms of law, antiquity is not a disqualification for the truth or relevance of moral precept. And you say, because it's old, it's no good. Just because something is, the social reality obviously doesn't make it right. You and I have been born into an era of legal revolution against the Bible. That doesn't mean we've made progress. We think that it does, but it does not mean that we've made progress. Just because things are a certain way in society does not mean that they should be that way or they cannot be another way or that they should be as they are. So the repealing of the laws that we've done, of Christian law, over the last hundred years, uh, they may be modern developments, but that doesn't make them right. Neither does it make them beneficial to society. And I think there's plenty of sociological, pragmatic evidence today that they've not been beneficial for our society. So what is older in this regard may in fact be far superior. Again, let me just cite Jonathan Burnside. He says this, he says, We find in biblical rules and judgments a level of insight that has rarely, if ever, been surpassed, nor do we find in any other legal system a more positive vision for humanity and the world than that found in the biblical legal collections. We should not assume that what is, is inevitable, especially when what is, is wrong. Biblical law reminds us that the world can be other than it is and that the actual is merely the possible. The actual is merely the possible. Now when we say that we are, uh, in, in scripture, we're bound to uh, God's law, which is very, very old. More than that, it's been written into our very nature. That doesn't mean there's no new applications. That doesn't mean the law is static. It doesn't mean that we say, well, there are, there's no way in which we can apply biblical law and faith into changing circumstances. In that sense, law is, is a changing thing, and it does adapt itself, not the precepts, but its applications do need to be flexible. And that's part of the challenge of law. That's why law is a journey into wisdom. It's not a science, uh, because cases are different. Motivations are different. Circumstances are different. That's the reality of dealing with legal problems. It's like the one we dealt with there in Numbers 27. Here is a situation where these uh, daughters have been left fatherless, not because of evil or, or rebellion in their dad, but because he just died. He wasn't part of the rebellion, but he passed away. There were no, bro there were no uh, brothers. They wanted some inheritance in the promised land. How was that going to be handled? So as one social commentator has pointed out, the law is given as principles, that's the Ten Commandments, and as cases, that's the detailed commandments or illustrations of how the Ten Commandments are applied. And its meaning is to be hammered out in experience and in trial. This does not mean that the law is a developing thing, but that man's awareness of its implications develops as new situations bring fresh light on the possible applications of the law. The psalmist in Psalm 119 clearly saw the law as a positive force in his growth and in his ability to stand up to the adversities of history. So biblical law does present itself as a, a, a growth or journey into wisdom for us where we are introduced to the essentials of justice in a variety of literary forms. So biblical law encompasses much more than the Ten Commandments. Biblical law is found in all of Scripture. It's in the wisdom literature. It's in the prophetic literature. It's in the New Testament corpus. It's not just the Ten Commandments. As Burnside has summarized it, he says, Biblical law is an integration of different instructional genres of the Bible, which together express a vision of society ultimately answerable to God. That's worth getting down. I'll read it to you again. Burnside, he says this, Biblical law is an integration of different instructional genres of the Bible which together express a vision of society ultimately answerable to God. And it's absolutely evident throughout Scripture that the Bible sees all societies of men as accountable to God and his law. This is just a fact of 
biblical faith. This is what St. Paul says in Romans 3, 19 through 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul puts the whole world under law to God. It's not a question of whether simply men recognize God's law. It's whether they like it or not, they live under God's law order. And they come under his blessings and cursings in terms of obedience and disobedience. This was the prophetic witness of the prophets even to the Gentile nations. You read the prophecies of Amos, the early chapters of Amos. Amos isn't speaking to the Hebrews in those early chapters. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, who's he speaking to? So even in the Old Covenant period, the, the uh, Hebrews, the, the prophets, were not just speaking to the Israelites. You know, William Wilberforce, who is... Um, fairly and, and, and usually credited in large measure with the abolition of the uh, slave trade in Europe, which is looked to as a great example of um, social engagement, um, uh, of a, a character where uh, biblical faith and law is challenging state law, because in scripture, kidnap, man theft and enslavement carries the death penalty. Now, what we don't often discuss is what, William Wilber what motivated William Wilberforce in this uh, endeavor. And what is not often uh, talked about is what is very apparent in his letters, is that he believed if England did not abolish the slave trade, she would be under God's judgment. And the future of the country would be a desperate one. That is what he believed. He believed that it was sin against God. It wasn't just that he cared for those who were enslaved, which he did. But he also believed that if he did not pursue this, the future of the country was in dire straits because the country was under law to God. In fact, the English Parliament in the Solemn League and Contract two centuries before had bound itself in covenant to God. Something we don't discuss anymore. But God doesn't forget. So the apostle in Romans 3, 19 through 20, he actually cites the law there as a collection of commandments and wisdom from all over the Old Testament. He actually quotes from the Psalms, Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. And he makes plain that the knowledge of sin comes by the law and the whole world stands accountable in terms of it. And so the salient question for the Christian church is, regarding the relevance of biblical law is whether or not we actually still believe that men and nations are accountable to God. Because if we do believe that, if we actually care about Canada and we care about our society, we'll care about whether it moves away from God's justice and law or whether it moves towards God's justice and law. Because we can't, as I think I said in the Q&A yesterday, when God judges us as a people, we can't avoid standing in terms of uh, the people. We're, we're still part of this country. We're part of this social order. And we have to bear testimony and witness to God's purposes and God's ways in history. That's if we have a supernaturalist biblical worldview. This is, this is where the rubber hits the road, guys. Whether we actually believe scripture or not. Whether we actually do believe there are con real world consequences for disobedience to the law of God or not. And that's something that... we you have to work through as a believer. Are we hybrid Christians? Do we believe the bits of the Bible that we find uh, acceptable to us? Or we, do we actually take Scripture as a whole, the way Jesus understood it, the way the apostles understood it? Christian has to answer an emphatic yes, I believe, that we are accountable to God. And if human society is to flourish, we have to walk in the old paths in the good way, as Jeremiah 6.16 6, tells us. Because it's not just that the wisdom of God is revealed in the written law of God. It's written into the very structure of the physical universe. That's what the Bible tells us. It's written into everything that is. Psalm 19, Proverbs 8, 22 following tells us very plainly that God's law, God's word is written into the very fabric of everything that is. Cannot be escaped. 
Men are either covenant keepers or they're covenant breakers as they stand in relationship to God. Cornelius Van Til. Now, despite all of that, which is actually right there on the surface of of, uh, the biblical text, many Christians today do not consult the law of God. It's considered an embarrassment. You rarely hear the law of God preached in the modern church. And if you do, as a minister, I can tell you, you will sometimes be exposed to charges of Pharisaism and legalism and even heresy. Never mind the challenge for you. If If it's that difficult for me as a pastor in the churches to preach the law of God, how much more difficult is it to uh, appeal to God's law in the legal sphere, uh, for legal professionals, or in the medical sphere, or whatever sphere of service you are in? And this problem is rooted in the loss, actually, of a truly evangelical theology in terms of the relationship between law and gospel. And actually, John Warwick Montgomery here correctly identifies the problem. In the uh, study that you were given at the beginning of the week, he says this, Confusion of law and gospel is possible in two directions. Law may be invested with the quality of gospel, thereby deceiving men into thinking that they can save themselves through personal or societal efforts. But gospel may also try to replace law, producing what Bonhoeffer has classically rephrased, cheap grace. In the one case, law swallows up gospel and the result is legalism. In the other, gospel absorbs law, yielding antinomianism, which means to be anti-law, anti-nomos. The gravity of dispensing with law for any reason, even on alleged ground that grace renders it no longer necessary, is suggested by the New Testament use of the Greek word anomos, lawless one, for the Antichrist. In contemporary theology, the antinomian error is rife, end quote. So he points out something critical there, that the Antichrist himself is identified. First of all, sin is defined in the Bible by the Apostle John as lawlessness. And the Antichrist is called the lawless one. So to be anti-law is actually clearly to side yourself with the wrong team. According to... God's word. But there is confusion here in terms of the relationship between law and gospel, and that's what Montgomery correctly identifies, and it's cost the church in our day because biblically illiterate and lawless Christians are in the end left floundering and without a guide or an anchor in a relativistic and pluralistic confusion of contemporary Western culture. Without a concept of Christian law, young people in particular find themselves adopting all kinds of humanistic ethical theories and legal frameworks that aren't just inferior to biblical faith and law, they're hostile to it. And moral progressivism in education, which Dr. Masson was talking about, leads many professing Christians to the conclusion that God needs to be updated that my moral sensibility is superior to God's. That I have a better perception of what justice and righteousness is than God does. So he needs to be uh, updated. Or we're embarrassed by him, so we are just out of sight, out of mind. What was morally true, we say, in the 5th century or the 1st century or the 17th century can't be true today, and so people subject God's word to a radical revisionism. One of the most, uh, I think, important missiologists uh, in the last few years, Christopher Wright, who has written a book called The Mission of God. He draws very heavily on covenantal themes. He points out something very important about the law of God and the Bible's claim for its social, social uniqueness in history on the world stage, amongst many, many other claimants. Don't forget when biblical law uh, came onto the scene... There was the famous law code of Hammurabi in the ancient Near East. There were nations all around Israel that had various law structures. And this is what Christopher Wright observes about Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. Get that text down. That's one you need to go and meditate on. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 9. This is what Christopher Wright says. He says, Old Testament law explicitly invites, even welcomes, public inspection and comparison. But the expected result of such a comparison is that Israel's law will be found superior in wisdom and justice. This is a monumental claim. 
It grants to the nations and to the readers of this text, including ourselves, the liberty to analyze Old Testament law in comparison with other social systems, ancient and modern, and to evaluate its claim. And indeed, the humaneness and justice of Israel's overall social and legal system have been favorably commented on by many scholars who have done the most meticulous studies of comparative ancient law, and its social relevance can still be profitably mined today. From our missiological perspective, these verses articulate a motivation for obedience to the law that is easily overlooked but highly significant. The point is that if Israel would live as God intended, then the nations would notice. Here we find that at least one aspect of that blessing of the nations would be by providing such a model of social justice that the nations would observe and ask questions. And actually, that's what the uh, English Puritans and the American colonists really believed about their Christian social order. They believed they were to be a light on a hill. That's how they articulated their understanding of themselves. In fact, the American Puritans who uh, founded the United States saw the Atlantic Ocean as like Israelites crossing the Red Sea. That's how they, they, that's how they pictured their journey to pursue a Christian republic. That's actually the heritage of the United States. And the church's failure, therefore, to understand the relevance of a biblical vision of justice, which is what Christopher Wright is talking about, leaves us without critical tools for kingdom work. And it leaves uh, the church, especially younger people who have, uh, the, have had to grow up with this biblical illiteracy, it leads us into moral confusion, arbitrary moral judgments, and justice and injustice become essentially impossible to define. It all becomes about social utility. Now, the second part of my lecture was going to be on the origin of law and uh, a comparison between natural law, uh, the idea that natural law can somehow replace biblical law, but my time is pretty much up. But I think I've got about two minutes to... Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do that when I look at... Uh, actually, I haven't got time to do any of it, so um, <clears throat> even in my other sessions. Let me, let, are there any questions about what I've said? I'll leave the natural law discussion. I'm still um, trying to work through whether we're advocating here federal and provincial law informed by Christian principles explicitly mm -hmm. or whether our responsibility is to refer to Christian principles as we're interacting with civil society and advocating on behalf of our clients. The related question being, are we advocating theology, i.e. an administrative hierarchy with God's hierarchy above that. Mm -hmm. um, both and, I think. Uh, here's, the, here's how it works, uh, essentially, with the, uh, I think with Scripture and historically. Um, in terms of federal and provincial law, we can't force anybody to adopt biblical principles. So uh, the main role of the, the Christian, and you're, you're a Christian before you're a lawyer or before you're a doctor, Christianity must inform everything about who we are, but we have to work within the limitations of our, for example, if I'm working in um, about the banking sector, well, there are actually, there is a biblical understanding of economics and debt and how those things work, but I can't impose that on the culture. I have to... If I'm working in banking, I still have to operate within the limits of the banking system, but I can at least advocate and counsel people in terms of how they should handle debt and so on. Now, in terms of um, biblical faith and law, changes in law reflect changes in the religion of a people. So I'm not suggesting that what we can do is engage with the, the powers that be and expect that they can, by legislative fiat, transform the law. In fact, law is being changed by activist judges right now. That's how, uh, if, in many times, even due process through Parliament is being bypassed. And uh, this is not going to change overnight. So, and that's why I pointed out that the, the part of the issue is that the, the church has, has abandoned biblical law to a large degree. 
that results in a culture that steadily abandons biblical law. So there is a ton of work to do at the grassroots level. Much of it has to be done in the pulpit. And um, I certainly don't blame the federal or provincial governments for for the state of things because they are just reflecting the will of the people to some degree, to some degree. There are times now when we're seeing kind of an elitist uh, oligarchy setting aside the opinions of the people, which is what happens when democracy goes on steroids and uh, the state decides that it represents, it is the voice of the people and it will tell us what uh, we ought to believe. So I think there's two things for the Christian. First of all, we have to personally seek to apply God's law in our own lives, in our own families, in our own churches. And uh, we have to prophetically this is the calling of Israel, it was the calling of the church, prophetically we bear witness to the justice and righteousness of God in his word. To the federal government, to the provincial government, we have to give a prophetic witness to that. As a lawyer, I totally understand that you can't walk into a courtroom and expect that the judge will do what he did in early early constitutional America and in reference to a case, open up the Bible and refer to the relevant passage. Right? That's not going to happen. In fact, if you appeal to scripture, you're likely to be dismissed, right? In, it'll, you'll be seen as irrelevant. Um, so there is a pragmatic challenge of how you operate in the system. But I think, count, yes, in legal counsel that you give to your clients, in, uh, I do think that at some point, at some point, lawyers are going to have to recognize that, and this is why the, the natural law discussion is relevant, they're going to have to realize that the appeal to natural law is increasingly baseless in our culture. In the post-Darwinian world, nature doesn't give law. And uh, this is a, this is a, the, the attempt to use natural law is a desire to find some kind of transcendent referent, right, transcendental referent that will not simply reduce to the crumbs of judicial pluralism, that just precedent or, you know, uh, uh, yeah, an appeal to legal history. Uh, that there's something beyond. The problem with that is that um, it has its, its origin is in Stoicism. It was the Stoics who first articulated the principle of natural law, that law is found somehow in nature. The Bible actually tells us that God's law is manifest in his creation, um, but uh, we live in a fallen world. And because the world is fallen, there isn't a law out there which everybody can identify and agree upon. I mean, the history of natural law proves that right reason has never agreed on what those, there's no body of natural law. So there is, a, there is an issue there, there is a problem there. And we're not, we're not fighting for a Christian theocracy. Are we? Okay, that's a very good question. Um, here's how I would answer that. Uh, there is no such thing as any law order that isn't theocratic. Every social order is a theocracy because every social order has at root a principle of sovereignty. And behind every principle of sovereignty is a God, small g. So you cannot escape the idea of theocracy because there is a God principle or a divine per se behind every single, might be Islamic, whether it be humanistic. So there is no such thing as a non-theocratic law order. Um, Every social order has an appeal to a sovereign. Now, for the current humanist, I think I quoted Michael Ignatieff the other day, and, and, and Dr. Ventrella was dealing with this as well, uh, is that today the source of sovereignty is the state. Well, that's ancient paganism. The state saw itself as, uh, in, in fact, the German philosopher Hegel said, the state is God on earth. So there you have a theocratic principle. Man is God. Man is the source of sovereignty. Man being expressed by the will of the state. That's the divine will. So you don't, there is no such thing, in my opinion, as a non-theocratic order. So what we are looking for is to say, yes, just as Queen Elizabeth submitted by oath herself, publicly and explicitly under God. Now, we've tried to make appeal to the Charter, but the courts have said the preamble is <coughs> legally dead. Right? And that God is a generic God. He can't be identified as the Christian God. Okay, so it's, though we supposedly recognize the supremacy of God. Uh, so the courts have said to us, well, there is no real appeal there. So that's, that, that is, um, even though many Christians saw that as a victory, getting that preamble in, it doesn't appear to have any legal force. Uh, 
So the queen did subject civil authority to God and his law. So I would say, yes, that is what Christians are aiming at, at the federal, but it won't happen by fiat. It cannot happen by, there can be no coercion in this. Okay? So law, of course, itself is a coercive uh, element in our society. It's, it's the, it's the, it, it provides coercion, but we cannot introduce Christian law by coercion. There will have to be a change in the religion of the people before the people demand Christian law. And that's how it's worked throughout history. That's how the European nations developed Christian law. The earliest uh, codified law was dur the, during the 12th and 13th century there, the Germanic codes, where you first had uh, codification of Christian law. Um, it wasn't wholly Christian, but that's where you first see it being introduced um, formally. Uh, it was a steady recognition of the sovereignty of God and of the word of God over the social order. Prior to that, it was, of course, Roman pagan law. And in fact, maybe it was a strategy of liberal humanism to sort of put negative connotations to the notion of theocracy. Absolutely. A modern person would see that as a repressive, problematic yeah. concept when, in fact, as you're saying, there's going to be an element... They just don't call it God. Absolutely. They would call it God, but it is theocratic. Now, what we don't believe in is ecclesiocracy. Now, that's what most people mean by theocracy. They think that theocracy is the rule of churchmen, right? That the church will rule the state uh, and that uh, you'll have a limited number of you know, high-powered clergy and bishops who will actually be, be, be dictating the terms to the state. That is not theocracy. Theocracy is actually liberty under God, freedom under God, and actually you can only have freedom under God. Freedom doesn't exist in any other, ultimately in any other social order because there is no appeal then beyond the state. That's the problem we're facing in our day. How do we make an appeal beyond the state when people don't recognize God or his law? It's the social will. It's the political will. So we don't believe in ecclesiocracy, though. We believe in a separation of powers. But the separation of powers does not mean the state is not under God. The church is under God. The family is under God. The state is under God. And they have their own jurisdictions. And they should not be confused. So we don't believe in ecclesiocracy, which has happened, of course, in the medieval period. And to some degree, Erastianism, even the queen is the head of the church... I mean, I'm not, when I cite the oath, I'm using that for historical purposes to show that we saw civil government as under God, not to support the idea that uh, the queen should be the head of the church. So, and the American, the American Revolution, as it's had as its objective in part, the, the idea that the state should not enforce or sanction any one Christian denomination as the church of the state. And that's important. But the principle of theocracy is that we are under God, absolutely. And you're right, it's been used as a boogeyman to say, oh, they want to impose a Christian theocracy on us. No, we don't believe in imposing anything. We believe that God's people should live in terms of God's word and law and that true freedom is under God. That's what theocracy means. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.